Welcome to the ASHG Trainee Paper Spotlight Podcast. I'm Lucia Hindorf, and along with my co-host, Andrew Marderstein, we'll be bringing you the science and the stories behind outstanding papers written by ASHG trainee members. You can find these papers or nominate your own paper on the ASHG website at ashg.org by searching for Trainee Paper Spotlight. Today's episode features a paper by Barbara Bitarello, published in Genes, Genomes, Genetics in November 2020. The title is Polygenic Scores for Height and Admixed Populations. Barbara is an assistant professor at Bryn Mawr College, where she does research in the medical genetics of understudied populations. This study focuses on the gap in predictive power of polygenic risk scores, or PRS, to predict height among different ancestry groups and systematically explores different population genetics factors that can underlie this difference. You'll also hear about what motivated her to go into genetics, why she moved from Brazil to the United States, and next steps for her research. And now, on to the interview. Thanks for joining us today. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, hi. Um, so my name is Barbara Bitarello. I am um, I am from Brazil originally. I'm now just started as an assistant professor here at Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania. Um, before that, I was doing a postdoc here at the Penn Medicine. Um, so at the UPenn School of Medicine. Before that, I did a postdoc in Germany in Leipzig at the Max Planck Institute and um, for evolutionary anthropology. And before that, I was doing grad school in Sao Paulo in Brazil. And most of those research experiences revolved around um, human genetics with a focus on evolution. So less clinical, more like evolutionary population genetics. Um, and things like that. So that's where my training uh, was concentrated. Um, and I mean, that's, I guess I talk about my <laughs> professional self. Uh, is there anything specific you'd like to know? How did you get interested in genetics and evolution? Yeah, good question. <laughs> so I actually, I have mentioned this in a, in a few, um, interviews before but it was really I was in high school and I I I guess I always liked science um, but I actually liked everything in school but I liked science more sorry that's my dog um, and I had this very inspiring professor um, who was teaching us some genetics and evolution in high school and he I, I greatly admired him. He was just like, he would go on tangents and talk about literature in the middle of genetics class. And he was reading a book at the time um, by Luigi Luca Cavalli Sforza, who was like very known in the field of like population genetics is one of the um, first people who surveyed genetic diversity in humans across the world, first with just blood groups and, and, and later with other things. And he was reading a book by by him called Genes, Peoples, and Languages, um, which, you know, sort of combines these three things in talking about humans and how we spread across the globe. 
um, as a species. And it's a book for general audiences, I think. But at the time, it just seemed like very, um, very interesting. So I asked him what he was reading, and he, he told me. And I just went and like bought the book because I thought he was very cool, and I wanted to read that book too. <laughs> and yeah, they didn't even have my that book in my hometown. I have to ask my mom to sort of like buy it when she traveled to Rio uh, de Janeiro, and you know it was quite the quite the thing. And I read it, and I didn't fully understand it. So I asked him about like genetic drift, which I hadn't understood. And he's like, you know, if you really want to understand that, you need to go to college and study genetics, like really study genetics and evolution. Yes, it's, it's kind of what I did. It's not not that simple. I had other interests, but I was kind of like driven by intellectual interests, really. I wasn't really thinking what I could do with that down the line. And in Brazil, you define your major before you enter college. So I applied to study biology at this university. Um in another state that was the best one. And, and I went. And after that, I just kept looking for opportunities to do anything related to human evolution. So I even considered paleoanthropology and other aspects of these studies. But um, once I had genetics in college, I was hooked, and specifically population genetics and evolution. So I was really wanted to study that. So that's the story. <laughs> Yeah. So, so you grew up in Brazil, you, you went to school in Brazil, did, had your original research experiences in Brazil. And how has like the experience been different when you came to the United States? Um, yeah, I have sort of a long history with the country here because I, um, yeah, that all that you said is true. I grew up in Brazil, went to college there and grad school. But also when I was pretty young, like seven, eight. Um, my mother, who's also a um, now retired professor, um, so like an academic person, she came to the U.S. to do, um, I want to say like the end of her PhD, part of her final PhD studies um, because she got an opportunity to come here. She got a grant and she you know, times were different. She had a professor job when she was 23, even before she got her PhD, you know, and she had that job her entire life. Um, and she moved here. So she took a year off from that to like to come here. And she brought me and my sister who was 10 and I was seven. So we lived here around that time. And that's when I learned English. And it's one big reason why this country doesn't feel as like foreign to me as it would if I had just suddenly moved here when I was, um, you know, after 30. <laughs> um, so we did that. And, you know, I then I have an American stepfather. Um, and in my teens, we again moved here for a little bit. Uh, she took a sabbatical. We moved here, but Denver, um, when, when I was like in seventh grade. So I also did that here. So I've had this like, so twice I lived here before um, that my sister did went to grad school here um, for a few years. So I visited a lot, a lot. And, but yeah, I haven't lived here since seventh grade. And, and then um, towards the end of my postdoc in Germany, which was very, you know, 
population genomics, focused on these these questions, I started getting interested in um, some potential consequences or repercussions of just these like sort of evolutionary dynamics on um, human genomes. So I was thinking about common diseases and things like that, and I sort of became a bit more interested in these sort of clinical um, applications, or at least understanding the repercussions for that, right? And that's how I um, I found Ian Matheson's work and became interested in, in maybe working with him. And I thought also, pragmatically, I was tired of moving to different countries. I had a lot of that, and I thought the U.S. doesn't feel so it doesn't feel like starting from zero to me. Like I speak that language. I understand that culture so I can move there and it won't be like starting from scratch all over again because Germany was really like a cultural shock for me when I went there. I didn't speak German. I had really never been to Europe really before I moved there. So it was a lot. It was very good, but also, you know, by that point, I just wanted to, you know, shift gears a bit with my research, but also go to a place where I could envision staying long term, um, which I didn't really in Germany, even though I liked the period that I had there. So, and I kind of, I really like Philly. I didn't know Philly before I moved here and I just fell in love immediately. I think it's a great city. So I've been pretty happy here. Um, what a wonderful role model. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about for that you published in 2020 called in the journal Three Genes, Genomes and Genetics on Polygenic Scores for Height and Anvix Population. Can you tell us more about the study and how it originally came together? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> towards the end of 20, um, 2017, um, I was wrapping up my postdoc in, in Leipzig with Aida Andres. Um, she was moving on to a new position elsewhere, and so I was looking for new postdoc opportunities, as I said, and, um, you know, the U.S., just like the sheer number of people doing interesting things, plus the fact that I was happy to move here, um, made me look more over here, although I did apply in some other countries as well, but um, so I was sort of interested in this issue of, like, complex diseases, how it relates to sort of like um, just diversity in human genomes in general or in balancy selection, which is what I was studying before. And I, I came upon um, um, Ian Matheson, you know, whose ancient DNA papers I had read, but I, I didn't really know um, that he had this interest in the, the things we ended up pub publishing together, like polygenic risk scores. Um, so when I saw that he was looking for postdocs, we talked and, you know, we we decided it was a good fit. And when I moved here, there were a few things that we considered working on. So one of them, I would just have kept doing more population, evolutionary genetics kinds of things. The other one, I would have to learn a lot of new things, which was ended up being this project, which is something he was interested in. I decided to do that one as like, also because it was potentially my last postdoc and I wanted to like really learn some like new new things um 
And, uh, you know, he kind of sold me on it. He said, I'm very interested in height. It's like a very, it's an interesting phenotype and it's very heritable and we still don't quite, um, we don't quite understand even like the, the predictions, like based on genetics, right? They're pretty good for people with European ancestry, but it's probably not the case for other ancestries. And he told me he was interested in exploring that. And I, I like that because right away I started reading and realized something I hadn't really thought that much about before, which is all these like GWAS, the vast majority is just like European ancestry. Um, and I could see from with my background in evolutionary genetics um, how you could have there are at least a few things that came to mind that could have an impact on the like prediction power of these sorts of approaches like polygenic risk scores when you transfer to other populations to different ancestry backgrounds. So, but we didn't actually know what we were going to find. So he, he, he told me this was his general idea and he had some cool data sets we could work with all like publicly available data sets. And we started looking at it right away and we actually made some like really good progress in the first few months. Later on, things got harder, but like after just a few months working on it, we could see um, like figure one from our paper, which is like just that um, at the time there were few papers on this, honestly, but as I worked on it, a lot of papers came out like while I was working on it. But, and people generally, a few people had looked into the question of, um, okay, so you have a polygenic risk score. If you use it to predict a phenotype based on GWAS results, now let's try to use that in a different uh, population. Oh, it's not good. So that kind of paper existed, not many, um, but no one had really sort of tried to look at the entire like sort of spectrum of ancestry because ancestry is not like a, a discrete thing, right? It's, it's continuous. We often discretize it for, for convenience. We'll say this is European, this is African, but it's that's not how it actually looks, right? These are just sort of like clustering approaches and kind of arbitrary cutoffs. But if you look at it as a continuum, what we saw is that prediction actually also, um, it increased linearly with the amount, the overall proportion of European ancestry that an individual had in their genome, which was pretty cool. Um, you know, and upon reflection, it made sense, but no, to our knowledge, no one had actually shown that linear relationship. So that was the first like big, uh, result we had and that we wanted to understand why. So the rest of the paper is about trying to figure out what is going on statistically and potentially biologically, but we figured it was mostly a statistical issue of how GWAS work and polygenic risk scores as a result. So that's what like the entire paper is about. Um, and we were, I, I was very, you know, positively surprised at like how interested people were in this, like, because before I was working on things that I found very interesting, but they didn't have this sort of wide um, interest. You know, this, the first work that I've had where a lot of people seem to at least get an intuition of what was done and that it's important. Um, my previous papers, I think, were a bit more niche, only like sort of population geneticists and 
um, like a little group of people um, found it interesting. So um, yeah, I really enjoyed working on this. It's completely different from everything else I was working on before. Um, I mean, if you want, I can sort of explain some of the findings we had, but um, I, I'll let you ask questions. Maybe that's better. Yeah, so I think it's very interesting that you sort of hit the ground running and sort of you envisioned figure one very, very early on. Yeah. So, but then later on, later on, you, you ran into some some difficulties. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about about what those difficulties might have been, what you sort of did to try to overcome it? Yeah. Uh, so figure one in our papers is like simply showing this um, linear relationship that I just described, right? So you have like on the x-axis um, the overall proportion of European ancestry in, um, in these individuals' genomes. And on the y-axis, just the... the um, the partial R squared, but that really means like the predictive power, right? So what we knew from, from even before is that when people took GWAS um, for height, which is was done in European ancestry cohorts and developed a polygenic risk score and try to predict height in European ancestry cohorts, they could get something around 20, 25%. It, it varies depending on the GWAS. But, um, you know, anything between 25, 30%, um, which, you know, is pretty high. It's kind of like um, it, as far as polygenic risk scores go. And, and then when they looked at some other ancestry, um, let's say African, um, I think there, was, there were a few papers already mentioning that it was like much, much lower. And then we did this thing where we stratified it, right, by, by bins of ancestry. And we saw that there was a linear relationship. And then we were like, okay, what could explain this? Um, this definitely seemed like some kind of statistical um, uh, matter and not like some actual like biological difference between, um, between ancestries, which is, is also not what we expected. Uh, like we never expected there to be a lot of biological differences in the determinants of height um, between these populations. By biological, I mean genetic. Um, so we started trying to look into this, but like a lot of people, when we've showed their, this first figure, they're like, oh, this is obvious. It's because of recombination, right? So like language disequilibrium patterns are more similar in, in similar ancestry individuals than between individuals, like the, the linkage disequilibrium patterns between um, African ancestry genomes and European ancestry genomes are like, they're clear differences you can spot. So um, basically you see longer haplotype blocks in European ancestry individuals than in, in African ancestry individuals. Now, that seemed intuitively right, and but, no one had really like sort of gone and tried to quantify these things. So that's kind of where we started. Uh, so we were like, okay, that's probably what it is. So let's have a look. And, you know, it's not a very easy question to address. And we tried this in a number of ways in the paper. Um, one thing we considered is like, so I forgot to mention, but these data sets we were looking at, they were mostly like, um, they were either just, entirely like European ancestry individuals, or they were um, 
cohorts that had we had cohorts with like african-american individuals or african european so individuals with some degree of african ancestry in the uk biobank and a lot of um, cohorts from the us um, that had african-americans so the proportion of european ancestry in these individuals varied um what didn't vary as much as that based on some arbitrary cutoff, they had been sort of classified as um, African Americans or, you know, not just African ancestry or just European ancestry. So when, um, so because we had these data sets, we, we were thinking about how to go about this. One thing we did right away is that some of these data sets had both genotype arrays, like data and also whole genome um sequences but not all of them a few so we thought okay so genotype arrays they have like a lower density of SNPs um so you know because LD blocks will influence like the effect that of which variant you detect with a GWAS and the effect that it has um indirectly in it because of linked variants then maybe if we have a higher density of SNPs from the same cohort, we would see something different. The idea being that if this was like a result of, um, let me try to explain this differently. So when you do a GWAS and you get a significant variant, that doesn't mean that is like a causal variant. It could just be linked to a causal variant, right? Like statistically linked. So when you have bigger blocks of, um, of uh, linkage to equilibrium, as I said, in European ancestry, individuals they tend to have that. You, if you then go and repeat that GWAS in a say um, African ancestry cohort, you might not get the same hit, even though it might be related to the same gene or re locus in the genome. So that is one thing that happens, and it partially explains the the lack of a complete overlap between GWAS when you try to run them in different uh, populations. So and that could indirectly influence the polygenic score as well. So that's sort of where we looked first and because that was an easier analysis to do. We didn't find actually any difference between using genotype arrays and whole sequence data for polygenic risk scores. As long as you had a good selection process for the variants that you're using in the polygenic score, you tended to get pretty similar results. Um, so if anything, sometimes it was slightly better with the genotype arrays. So that definitely didn't explain it, but that also is not the only way one could look at this linkage equilibrium matter. So another more complicated thing we did was, um, we looked at recombination rates across the genome and we had recombination maps for European ancestry and for African ancestry. And what we said was... Here is a variant that we're including in our polygenic score. Um, and now let's bin each variant that we're using in this score based on the genomic distributions of recombination rates. And let's see if we find different patterns in these different bins. The idea being that um, you could have, it could be that for regions in the original GWAS in European ancestry where you had most, where you had a variant falling in, say, a 
low recombination rate in both ancestries, then you could get a different pattern than, say, if it was a low recombination rate in European ancestry and high recombination rate in African ancestry and so on. So we tried to to look at those things. Um, and it was like we, we found evidence that there was an effect of recombination rate, yes, but it was less pronounced than we would expect if this was the only reason for the, the linear trend we had seen. So basically, it explained some of the this difference in prediction, but it didn't seem to explain all of it. Um, and we, we tried a few other things as well. So we also, like, less directly related to the LD patterns. So we also looked at the frequency of alleles because we know that changes across populations and that does influence, um, that influences that your prediction power, right? Because assuming that a variant from a GWAS, it has an effect size. If you assume that that effect size is the same across populations, because that is like some true measure of its effect um, on the phenotype, then you might have uh, a net effect that is different across populations because that variant happens to be not very frequent, say, in African ancestry populations. I don't know if that seems intuitive. Like, you capture a variant in a GWAS in European ancestry that has a considerable effect on height, and it has an effect associated with it. And then you assume that that's the same for the other ancestry. Um, but that variant is actually way, way less frequent in the other population than you would actually have. It contributes less to the variation of that phenotype in that population, if that makes sense. And so basically, if you had a situation where a lot of these variants are less frequent in African ancestry, this could explain a pattern like this. Um, well, we didn't find that there was such a trend. Of course, some variants, that was the case, but it wasn't just like an overall trend of the variants that we were using. So that definitely was not enough to explain it. Um, and I should clarify that each of these things we were exploring, they're not like completely independent from the other. So it's not like we could be like, oh, this percent is explained by this one thing and this other percent is explained by this other factor. But what we could say is that even when we looked at the ones that seemed to contribute the most, it was only a fraction of what this like this discrepancy was that we, we were observing. Um, and one thing we hypothesized in the paper, but we had no way to test, was that if we actually had more African ancestry um, individuals in in our analysis, which you know we gathered as many as, as we could find, and or if there had been GWAS for height in African ancestry cohorts with like big numbers, um, then we we would get have better estimates for effect sizes for those ancestries, and then we would get better prediction. But that was something that we simply could not have. And the whole point of this paper was to say, you know, you think you run a big GWAS at like UK Biobank or something like that, and you have these effects, and then you can just go around and distribute scores. But at the at the best best case scenario, that you can do that for European ancestry individuals, um, and even Within the same ancestry, there are issues also across cohorts, but it definitely does not work for other ancestries. Now, as I was working on this, a couple of papers came out, and since I've published this, a lot of papers have come out saying similar things. 
and, you know, doing different approaches sometimes, but just sort of converging to this idea. Um, and I have worked some more on this, although not published yet, and like using um, GWAS data for African ancestry specifically um, that I was able to gather around. And it did not improve these predictions much for African ancestry. And we started suspecting, Ian and I, that it actually, um, I mean, in the ideal limit, you know, like you would have a same size GWAS for both ancestors. That would probably solve the issue. But the, the whole point is that you don't want to have to redo these large scale studies for each individual ancestries. In some cases, that would be literally impossible. You don't have th that many people to, to work with. And so the idea was more like understand why they don't transfer well. And is there anything mathematical that we can do to improve these predictions? Right. Um, and we tried, we tried to leverage the ancestry component into the PRS uh, to the score. And we got only very, very marginal improvement. And we thought that might be because we didn't have a, a decently sized GWAS for, for the ancestry we were looking at, which was African. Um, but as I said, I have worked some more on this and not published it. And it, even with some better effect estimates, for African ancestry, we only got marginal improvement. And there have been others who published similar findings as well based on the Biobank Japan. So looking at another ancestry, um, it seems like just including some linear component of ancestry is not going to cut it. Um, I, like our conclusion from the paper by exclusion of everything else is that most likely a lot of this discrepancy has to do with the fact that effect size estimates, they're not um, they are a virtue of everything else in your study, right? They're a virtue of what variants are linked to that variant, what's the frequency of those other variants, what are the interactions of those variants with the genetic background and, and the environment. And so the effect that you estimate from GWAS is really, it's, um, it's, it's a marginal effect size, right? It's not an absolute number that has an absolute meaning. So... It does have utility in prediction, but it is not something you can just transfer across ancestries. And so even when you do just the GWAS without polygenic score, you tend to get a big overlap in the regions. Once you control for the LD and stuff, you tend to get similar hits, but the effect estimates tend to be very different. And that's another suggestion um, related to, to what I'm saying here, that it's probably, uh, it's the effect size itself that is a big part of the issue here. So not like, oh, this variant is not important in this other ancestry. It probably is, but in ways that we have not quantified well enough in the other ancestry to be able to account for properly. So when we just include it as is in the score, you get some prediction, but it's not great. And like the discrepancy is huge. So I mentioned like 30% for European ancestry and you get like five or less for the, um, the individuals with um, mostly African, but not 100% African ancestry in our data sets. So they are admixed, um, but they have more genetic, more African um, uh, genetic ancestry than European. So that was the, the criterion. Um, 
Yeah, so that just made, you know, it was definitely interesting, but it was frustrating too because we couldn't solve the matter. We couldn't like explicitly quantify exactly how much each of these things were influencing. We could say none of these is enough to explain this, and we think it actually has to do with effect size. Uh, one way to rule that out would be to actually have GWAS data for African ancestry with a decently sized GWAS, even if not as big as the UK Biobank, and see if we got an enormous improve improvement in this, which we don't really. It's a bit better, but it doesn't like get even close. So we suspect it really is um, it really is related to that. And from what I've been following in the literature, other people publishing about this, I, I still believe this is the case. And so there's no simple solution. And I think this has a lot of implications. And I think part of the interest in, in this study from, from other people that I've received is because it um, it attempted, right, to quantify these things, but also to sort of bring light and interest into this matter, this very practical consequence of this huge bias that we have in the in the in the literature, in the community, in the history of human genetics, everything with just like sampling um, European ancestry individuals. And it has in recent time become actually a sort of often pragmatic decision. If you've read about GWAS, when people propose them, you need the numbers. You need big numbers and you need to convince your funding agencies and whatnot that you can detect something and rule out some confounding factors. And running GWAS on admixed uh, populations is harder in a way, and there, we know way less about how to handle that than just one single ancestry. And the single ancestry that is easiest for people working in North America and Europe to, to sample is European ancestry. And that's, and it's just a cycle and it just keeps happening. So the only ancestry that has seen Absolutely. an increase in recent times has been East Asian, um, because there have been some large scale pro uh, projects from mostly China and Japan and to some extent Korea. So you have seen an increase in that, but all the other populations remain largely unsampled uh, in comparison to, to European ancestry. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so I no, think this you're is super important work, Barbara. So thank you. Yeah, what were we going to say, Lucia? Go ahead, Andrew. Oh, this is this is super important. Um, and just wanted to thank you for joining us today, Barbara. We really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you so much for your interest and for letting me talk about this work. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, it's published, it's open access, and uh, please write to me if you have any questions, whoever is listening and ends up reading the paper. Um, it can get a bit technical sometimes, so I just try to give you an idea of, of how, it, how it was. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.